And so we begin now looking at a book that has such an amazing impact on generations. Thank you. Come on, Stuart. We got this. You and me. We begin in Genesis because Genesis is a book that is a book that is organized around ten toledet. That, that's the Hebrew word for generations. And those ten generations actually frame the entire message. But even more importantly, this was a book written by Moses along with the rest of the Pentateuch, the five uh, books of the law, that was written by Moses to be able to be given to a generation that would suddenly be without Moses, without that leadership, heading into the promised land against fortified cities filled with men trained for war from birth. And here they are, looking but like grasshoppers, ready to go in and claim the promises of God with all that that involves. And, and they needed to have instilled in them an abiding deep faith in the great and awesome God that is their God, and that is our God. Right. And, and that's what we get to do as we go through this book of, Gen of Genesis now. We get to see God with all the veils taken away in His full splendor, in His great glory and might, our God. You know, the, the generations later of Israel that would have to reclaim and see God again. And when we know historically, when the Jews picked back up the, the Torah, and began to study it earnestly, we know what happened in the Babylonian captivity. And it was during that time where they would open to this book as well. And perhaps recognize that here we are in Chaldea, in, in Babylon, in captivity. Could it be that the claims of these Babylonians are true? That they have gods? And could it be that their gods are more powerful than our gods? And could it be that their gods have trumped our God and that's why we're here now enslaved in this condition that we're at? They needed it so desperately to look into these words and to see God's great design, His sovereignty, His might, His brilliance for the plan that He had already had for them, the refining hand that He was working in them, and to never waver Amen. in doubt. And likewise now, we now face a world wanting not to raise up another God, but to try to take any sense of God away. To explain everything through materialism rather than through the very word of God. And again and again, we're going to face this. And so for the first two Sundays, we are going to look at Genesis 1. We've got a lot of the kids in today, so we won't take as kind of a technical a dive today as we will next week. But we will look at Genesis 1 because it is paramount for our worldview of how we make sense of all the stuff that happens all about us. Our relationship to us in the world and us to God and, and one to another. All of it hinges on our correct and wonderful reading of Genesis 1. And so, please, turn with me as we look over and we, we open up this book. You know, there are a lot of books that have famous first words. Call me Ishmael. The Nelly, a cruising y'all. I remember closing that book as soon as I read those words. <laughs> Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I am Sam. Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. And as well known as all those words may be, all of them pale in comparison to the goosebumps that arise when we open up the Word of God and read these words. 
In the beginning, God. And so we have laid out for us the way to understand all of creation right before us. Let's, let's read together. In the beginning, God created. And by the word, way, the word created here is used only of God in Scripture. And it is also used only of creation where something is made out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo. That's as technical as I'll get right now. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. And He separated light from darkness. God called the light day. In the darkness He called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. The first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse. Between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation. Seed bearing plants and trees on the land. That bear fruit with their seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation. Plants bearing seed according to their kinds. Trees bearing fruit with the seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, by the way, and God said, are repeated ten times, the number of fullness throughout this creation account. The very first seven words that begin in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, they are seven Hebrew words. Seven and ten repeat themselves in a beautiful rhythmic melody all throughout this first chapter. It is a brilliance of rhetoric that this work of of the Holy Spirit through Moses is given to us. And God said, verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And so it was. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. That's, oh, by the way. And just as an, oh, by the way, interesting that he doesn't, Moses here doesn't even name the greater light and the lesser light, the sun and the moon. Doesn't even give them the respect of a name because many of those that were in captivity or many of those that had been perhaps influenced by the nations around them would have been influenced towards a worship of idolatry of the sun and the moon. And it's interesting that the sun and moon are relegated not into the beginning of creation, but just stuff that God creates to continue to fill his creation, really setting them apart from any sort of deity that the other nations could have perhaps uh, found themselves worshiping. Verse 17, God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was 
It was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the water and the seas, let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Here we go. Sixth day. This pertains to you. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Amen. If, if you could move forward about three slides, I don't know if you can get to that. I'm, I'm going to skip past the videos and things. To the next slide that also says, you know what, I can do it here. I think. Past that. We can just point at it and go, I think. Okay. So, there are two questions that I want to talk about today. And the one question is the question everybody wants to talk about when they encounter this passage. And what is that question? How did God create the heavens and the earth? That's what everybody wants to do when they look at this passage. But I propose that that is not the best question to ask of this passage. We will at least address it in a cursory manner today. Next week, I'm not going to avoid it. We're going to go deep into this whole idea. And we will go deep into the whole idea of how it was that God brought about creation as best as we can really reconcile it with the, the creation story that we have here. But the more important question is, why? Why? It's the, it's the question that your soul actually longs to answer when you give yourself enough quiet time and put the screens away to be able to really be contemplative for a moment. And when you do, you know that's the question that you ask. Why am I here? Why was all of this created? Why are we as we are? And Genesis 1 is interesting because it is the same account in many ways as Genesis 2. And many people look at both accounts and question if these are two creation accounts, 
Why are there conflicts between the two? And as, as you read this week through Genesis 2, uh, you'll, you'll recognize that. But they're two different accounts of the same event. And that's not unusual in ancient literature. It's not unusual in the Bible itself. As a matter of fact, if, if we look at even Moses' story of the Red Sea. And in Exodus 14, you have this wonderful telling in very literal sense, in very clear detail, with nothing that seems to speak of anything metaphorical going on as he gives the account of something so magnificent as the seas separating and God delivering his people. But then in Exodus 15, the same account is retold. But this time, it is told in beautiful verse. It is done poetically rather than prosaically. And it is done by Miriam as she sings the song of deliverance. The same account, right next to each other, juxtaposed, just as Genesis 1 and 2 are juxtaposed. But, but nonetheless, much, much different. And if you were to demand out of Exodus 15... The literalism that you would demand out of, let's say, Genesis 1 and 2, you might likewise say, well, I, I really have trouble with the Bible because Exodus 14 and 15 don't seem to mesh as perfectly as I'd like it to in my 21st century sensibilities of how I would go about capturing these ideas. But what God is doing here is He is giving us an amazing love song. Right. The culmination of all creation comes not in the beginning, but it comes with you. Amen. It comes when God gives the benediction, the good word. This is very good. I've created in my own image. Now, while how is not as important as why, you know, in the last hundred years, we have gone from an idea that the universe was in steady state, that everything that you see, all of the, the, the different... Uh, Heavenly bodies that are perceivable are there as they always have been, if you did not have a biblical worldview. And really, from the 1850s on, those who espoused a materialistic worldview became more and more emboldened with their atheistic explanation for all things, including the, the, the cosmos themselves. And, and what they espoused was that all that we see is always as it has always been. But in 1917, Einstein began his theories of relativity. And as he did so, and, and, and went through his equations, he realized that his equations do not allow in any way for a steady state universe. It would either have to contract or expand. And he wasn't sure which it was, and so he entered what he called a fudge factor into his equation. But then a Belgian priest, just a few years later, looked at his equations and recognized the error and predicted that the universe could not be in steady state. And then just a couple years later, on Mount Wilson in L.A., through the great Hubble microscope, wasn't called the Hubble microscope, it's just called a microscope, at the Mount Wilson Observatory, but the guy looking through it was, was, was Hubble. And what he recognized through that microscope was a red shift. That all of the stars that he was able to perceive had what seemed to be, to use kind of a, a more of a, a layman's term, not as that much of a layman's term, there was a Doppler effect of all the stars that he saw. A Doppler effect is when you're at, God forbid, a NASCAR race, and, and the car is coming at you, and as it comes your way, it's at a higher pitch, but as it goes past you, it's at a lower pitch, right? Rear home. Rear home. 
and then they turn left, and then they go straight, and then they turn left, and then they go straight. Right? right? Higher pitch, lower pitch. Because as it's going further away, everything moves in, sound, in, in waves. Sound and light moves in waves. And if, if something is moving away, those, those waves are going to come at you slower. As it's coming at you, those waves are going to come at you faster. Same thing occurs with light when objects are moving at the speed of light. And when they're moving at the speed of light, if they're coming at you, then those waves are, are, are going to be shorter. And they'll be, you know, ultraviolet rays. But, but it, as they're moving away from you, they'll get longer and they'll, they'll appear more red. And that's what they did in this microscope, which confirmed that Einstein's theory was right. And that Lemaire, the, the, the Belgian priest who had corrected him, was right. Einstein later said, this was the biggest blunder of my life. Thank goodness it's been corrected before I died. And what came about from that was the theory of the Big Bang, which said that all matter, based on all the observable evidence that we have and based on all of the best of equations that we have, shows that all matter at one point in time was a singularity. And, out of, and they don't know what was before that singularity, and that troubles physicists and astronomers uh, quite a bit, but all matter was a singularity, and, and prior to that, they don't really know. Well... We know. And, and while the how, of course, is so exciting for, for all different scientific discoveries, for, for us, the how has already been made clear. And all of the kind of the, the different kind of vagaries of all of the different scientific discoveries keep coming back to there was a beginning. And in that beginning was something so powerful, in, inconceivable of even measuring the power of what happened at that moment which was a flash, by, by all accounts of any astronomers, was a flash of, of power and mass and, and force that could not even be measured. And that was, in some way, the genesis of all of our beginnings. They even use the same word. And, and yet, praise God, that while, while they have gone, gone on their roller coaster ride of all of the different theories, all along, those who had a biblical worldview have always understood, well, sure there was a beginning. Because God was always in the beginning. And so yes, the how might be interesting for, for different and, and sorted reasons. But, but, but the how kind of at some point is, is not going to, to mean as much. But by the way, some get caught up in the how in terms of the order of the events as well. And, and let me just kind of address that for a moment here. So let's look at the beautiful poetry of this passage. Because this passage, in Hebrew poetry, there are two main features, let's say, of poetry that make something lyrical or song-like. And number one is repetition. Number two is parallelism. And what we have all throughout this account, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so. It was good. It was good. Saw that it was good. There was day. There was night. The fourth day. Again and again. This could not be more emblematic of a beautiful song. That is the beauty of what we have here. And not only does it have all those features of parallelism and repetition, but if we were to get deeper into all of the different ways that Moses uses seven words, then 14 words, then 21 words, then 35 words, and the masterfulness of being able to use these series of sevens, the word of perfection and completion that is, that is given through all of this, it, we, we, would, we would just marvel if we could understand it to the depth that, that those who could read it in Hebrew would really be able to appreciate it. This is some of the finest work of literature, and it is one of the greatest truths given to us. Now, here's what's interesting. is they say, Well, 
you know, some of these things bother people. Like, well, how did he create light and dark, but he didn't create the sun and the moon and the stars yet? Like, how did that happen? And how are there land plants before there's a sun and a moon? Like, how did all of that happen? Well, look at the beautiful parallelism and the symmetry of this account. Day one, light and dark. Day two, sky and water. Day three, land and plants. Guess what happens on day four? The, the, the parallel day to light and dark, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Let there be light, the parallel day, here are the light bearers. Let's have sky and water, parallel day, guess what comes along? Those that inhabit the sky and the water, the birds and the fish. Day three, the land and the plants, well, guess what happens on day six, the parallel day? Animals and ultimately the crown of all creation, the very imago Dei, the image of God, the God-bearers, the, the bearing the image of God, mankind, him and herself. That is the beautiful symmetry of this. If you are trying to look to deconstruct some sort of a theory of evolution or any sort of cosmology out of all of this, you're looking in the wrong genre. This is such beautiful poetry. It is not prosaic. It is meant for us to marvel at how much we are adored by God. How lovely we are for Him and how all was prepared so that we could be the pinnacle of all creation. Was there a beginning? Yes. How did it come about? God. But what's the real big purpose of this? He gives this so that He helps you to know, here's why I did all of this. And, and, and that's the, the big question for us to consider. Why? Why? Why is it that God created the heavens and the earth? Well, let's, you've got to look a little closer. You've got to read a little further. And you will throughout this week as you continue to read Genesis. And to, to recognize that what God does here as He begins in His creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters during this. Where is this repeated? In the beginning, this creation of God. Well, it's repeated by John. And if we take a peek over at John, keep your finger in Genesis. Although I bet it's pretty easy for you to find your way back to Genesis. John 1. In Genesis we have, in the beginning, God. In John 1 we have, in the beginning was the Word. Lagos. An amazing concept. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, that is through the Word, through Jesus, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines out of the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Moving on down to verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a, husband, a, a human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. This is why Jesus came, is so that we could have the ultimate place again in creation. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Down in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, 
But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. As wonderful as we see this picture of God in Genesis 1, John 1 tells us just as clearly and perhaps more distinctly and with more specificity, you're going to see God in Jesus. Now, isn't it interesting as God creates, every time he creates, how does he do it? He speaks everything into existence. Nothing is created without his word. And when God says, let there be light, he doesn't go and fashion a flashlight. He just says the words, let there be light and there is light. Now, if I said, let there be light, well, I better have a light switch nearby or a clapper. If any of you still have one of those. Or maybe have my Alexa set to to deal with my Wemo switch and my my floor lamp. But it's not going to happen just because I said, let there be light. It's going to take a whole lot more agency than just my words. But it takes no more agency than the word of God for the stars of the heavens to be made. For the earth to be formed. For us to enter into the creation epic story. All it takes is the word of God. And so what we see here in Genesis 1 is we see the Father in His intent of creation. But yet we see the actual creation itself coming through the Word of God, the Son. And yet at the same time, the Spirit is shown as as hovering. That word that's used repeatedly through the Scriptures and all the Hebrew Scriptures is always used of a female bird, a mother hen, a mother eagle in Isaiah. Hovering over her chicks to be able to either incubate them or protect them or to to raise them up. And so what do we see here when we look carefully? We see the Father. We see the Word in the Son. And we see the Spirit. And then as God contemplates the big step of creation. He says, let us make man in our own image. Who's the hour? Well, the word used for God all throughout this passage is Elohim. I am is the ending in all of Hebrew words for plural. And so we just have it taken as matter of course that God is being described as both plural but yet unified in what he does. And as we kind of unfold the intricacies and the wonders of his plurality, one God but yet distinct in three persons, the Father, the Lagos, and the Spirit the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we see here this consideration, should we now extend creation? Because what the Father and the Son and the Spirit have already enjoyed through all of eternity is a wondrous exchange and communal love. God didn't make man because he was some kind of, I don't know, a, a uh, old man getting Lonely because it was Christmas time and you're an empty nester and your kids are all with the other side of the family. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That is not why God had to create man. God had already been exchanging and sharing and circling in a wondrous relationship of beautiful unity and love. Father, Son, Spirit. It's one of the most beautiful concepts of the Trinity that we have. And now God considers, let us extend it. Let us extend our love. 
Let us spread this community of beauty. And let's make man and woman, man and woman in our image. And he does. And when he sees it, he says, it is not just good, it is very good. This is what you were made for. And this is what we need to recognize. And this is why there is a creation story. Why? Because God in all of his wondrous communal love overflowing decided he wanted to extend it to you. And what you were built for was for the great benediction of God. What you were built for was to hear those words. It is very good. As God looks at you, whether you realize it fully or not, but when you can still your soul and allow yourself to contemplate and not try to avoid it through some sort of shortcut lust or some sort of escapism that would dull your brain or your senses or some sort of screen-filled escapism that is only going to kind of kick the can down the road until you really have to consider the depth of who you are and why you were made. You will then know when you finally allow yourself that moment that the thing that your soul longs for, the DNA that that makes you up has always longed to hear more than anything else. Your creator proclaimed to you, you are very good. Like a deer pants for water. So we're meant to pant for you, O God, for that depth of relationship. It's why the heavens declare the glories of God. Psalm 42, Psalm 19. But then why did Jesus come? Because despite this being the initial plan of God and and the, the design of you and the destiny of you, we nonetheless thumbed our nose at all that he offered. And so Jesus had to come. Jesus had to come and Jesus had to bear All of those shortcut lusts, all of those nasty, selfish, and fleshly indulgences, all of those escapisms, all of those ignoring of God, all of that self-focus. And Jesus, rather than extending and continuing in that beautiful dance of love of unity, Jesus had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To break that bond so that you could have that bond. So that you would never be forsaken. So that you could say, as, as John 1.13 says, so that you could be born not of a human will, but you could be born of God. So that God can say of you, just as he said of his son, you are my son. My son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. More than we know, this is the heart cry of our soul. This is the design of our DNA. This is the ultimate of all of our ends. And it is available to us, not only as we see this original creation account, but it is available to us when we recognize why it is that the Logos, the word that has created all things, has come to recreate you. This is why Jesus came, so that you could be recreated back into this relationship that God has always had in his design. If you're there, marvel at what this is. If you're not there, still your soul. Allow it to happen. Sometimes the holidays bring out the fact that there's something deeply wrong in your life. That there's a disconnect that is just grinding away. 
at your heart and your soul. Don't ignore it. Don't medicate it. Don't try to escape from it. Look at it and you'll see that this is what you want. You want God to enter you into that fellowship. To say, my daughter, you are very good. You are my son whom I love. Enter into your father's relationship. This is what we want. This is available to us in Christ. And so as we conclude, I want you to take time this week. Take time to still your soul. Be still and ask, how can I know God finds me good? Even very good. And if you're not sure, you need to grab somebody. This is too big of a deal. Grab somebody. And let, you, let it be that you are given the assurance of how you go from point A to point B. Point B being God looking at you and proclaiming the great benediction as he looks at you through eyes of love and adored. You are good. Amen. You are very good. Amen.